Hi guys, I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month, we're reading Age of Opportunity by Dr. Lawrence Steinberg. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we are covering Age of Opportunity, chapters three and four. It's going to be a lot of information. <laughs> so we'll keep our little conversation at the beginning short, but we are going to play Would You Rather? And Adrian, you said you have a good one? Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay. Okay. Would you rather, would you feel worse if no one showed up to your wedding or if no one showed up to your funeral? Okay. I don't picture myself, well, first of all, I haven't pictured either one in my life. You know, I've been engaged for a full five years now. And I love that. My wedding is probably going to be me and my future husband just alone together somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) And then I also picture the same thing for my funeral, like just that my family would kind of like cremate me and then get together, you know, just the immediate family to spread my ashes somewhere. (laughs) You don't like a big to do. I don't want a big to do. I don't like a lot of attention on me. So which is silly that I have a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess it would be the funeral. If I imagine like five people who love me gathering and they don't show up, that would really bother me. (laughs) from the grave. What about you? I think I would be more offended if people didn't show up to my funeral. Because at least my wedding, I'm like, okay, maybe people don't support my union, whatever. Maybe they don't like the person I'm marrying. Who knows? There's like a lot of drama reasons that people might not show up to a wedding. But a funeral is like celebrating your life lived. Yeah. But there have been funerals that I haven't attended that have just been like too emotionally difficult. So okay. Yeah. I don't know. I guess, but I think my answer would be I'd be more upset if people didn't attend my funeral. That feels more like a personal slight than my wedding. But it is so sad because weddings are so happy. Yeah. For people to not show. If you invite a lot of people, not in your situation, if you don't invite anyone. (laughs) Okay. Let me ask you this. Okay. Would you rather let your boss 
or your parents see your full internet search history? What a question. (laughs) I guess the real question is, do you have weird stuff in your search history? (laughs) I don't think it's like the weirdest. Um, I guess I would go with my boss because I don't even... My boss and I, you know, I'm a teletherapist, so it's not like I really see my boss that often. So she thinks I'm some kind of weirdo, (laughs) you know, over the computer. That's fine, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What about you? I guess I'd go with the same if I had a job with a boss. Um, Oh, I guess. Oh, would I let one of my client's parents see my search history? I guess that's your boss. No. (laughs) I think I'd rather have my parents. (laughs) Yeah, really. I feel like my parents kind of know that I search some weird stuff sometimes, you know, because sometimes you see something and you're curious about it and then you go, ooh, I wouldn't want somebody to know I was looking at this. I know. I guess we're just all curious by nature. That's us. If your search history was like heavy duty trash bags. Can you get charged with murder if the body is never found? (laughs) Like dead giveaway. Is the icicle really the best weapon? You know? Ooh. I know. Good question. It is, right? Because it, it just it destroys away. itself. <laughs> okay. Um, hold on. Let me do one more in case I want to delete that whole one. Let's see. Um Okay, this feels so familiar, but maybe it's just because I've read it. Would you rather have to wear a bib every time you went out to eat or drink from a sippy cup every time you're at a bar? No, we've never talked about this. <laughs> I think I would remember. <laughs> I think I would rather wear a bib every time I went out to eat because I know from having my own child, there are some stylish bibs. <laughs> Maybe I could get one that looks like a little bandana. <laughs> but I don't think it would attract as much attention. Hold on. You have to wear the rubber one that has the little thing that catches the food at the bottom, the compartment. Oh. Okay, look at me trying to find the loophole. Like, oh, I get the bandana one. Yeah, I guess I'd still wear the bib. Yeah, the ones you get at like a crab restaurant. At the seafood restaurant. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's what I was leaning towards too. Like the bib, it just feels more like, you know, like you're just a little eccentric. But a sippy cup at a bar, people are like, ooh, like what? What's going on with her? Yeah. Hey, what did you just smell? Some essential oils I found in this drawer. <laughs> it was spruce. I was like, what does this spruce smell like? <laughs> All right. Let's take a quick break and get back to discuss Age of Opportunity. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. S. L. P. I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her lid comb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. (laughs) The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. 
We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. All right, so chapter three is called The Longest Decade, and we are pruning out some of the information because otherwise this will be the longest episode. So there's a whole section in the beginning that I'm just going to kind of skip and summarize by saying puberty is starting a lot earlier and adolescence is lasting a lot longer than it used to. And I want you to read it to understand how he knows this, like looking at historical data right, Adrian? Yes, right. (laughs) But basically, it used to be a couple hundred years ago, five years long for women, you know, from the time that they got their period to when they got married. And now it is like 15 years. And he even said by 2020, because he wrote this book before 2020, that it would probably be about 20 years long from age eight to 28, maybe. I was thinking like 10 to 30. I think Okay. like late 20s, early 30s is probably the average age of marriage. But You know, I have to give him some credit because I like that he was discussing how we have a lot of data on women's first periods, but we don't have a lot of data on like an official puberty starting point for boys. So I like that he was talking about like accessing choir records for children's choirs because that was interesting. Yeah, they would record when the boys voices changed. And I couldn't get over the fact that he said, you know, in the mid 1700s, it happened at 18 for boys. I know. I I was like, what? So boys (laughs) seemed so much younger for so much longer. And then gradually it started getting younger, you know, just like with women, it's the period started coming sooner. So yeah, I don't know. It was really interesting. He also at the end of that whole section that I'm trying to skip, but that is fascinating. So please read it. He described how they've also tried to use like breast development and testicle growth in boys and summed it up by saying that girls are showing their first signs of sexual development in kindergarten now in some areas and boys in first grade, which is nuts. He kind of shows you the extremes, like in some areas, kids are showing these signs so young, like at age six. So kind of wild. Yeah. But why? So 
we used to think it was just genetics, but now we know it's a mix of genetics and environmental factors. And the biggest factor is health and nutrition. In general, a mother who's healthy during pregnancy and then has a child who's healthy will enter puberty earlier, which is why the age of puberty did lower from the 19th century to the 20th, because nutrition in general improved. More recently, though, health and nutrition have not improved enough to account for the decline in puberty age, say from the 1950s to now. Kids in the most unhealthy and poorest populations continue to have dropping ages, and it's important for us to understand why. So he describes how puberty happens. The onset is due to an increase in a brain chemical called kisspeptin. It signals to the ovaries or testicles to increase production of estrogen, testosterone, or other hormones that make us able to reproduce. Leptin stimulates kisspeptin and melatonin suppresses it, which these are, I've heard a lot about these, but in relation to like diet and sleep, obviously. Leptin is a hunger regulating hormone. It's produced by fat cells and we have a proportionate amount to our level of body fat. So the more body fat you have, the more leptin you have. And it's what signals to your brain when you're full enough as you're eating. Melatonin helps regulate our sleep cycles. It rises and falls over the course of the day, rises when it gets darker and makes us sleepy, and lowers in the morning, causing us to wake up. It's regulated by an internal biological clock, but it can also be shifted due to light exposure. And it's sensitive to both artificial and natural light. So looking at screens before bed can impact it, and he says it's no wonder that teens today have more problems sleeping than previous generations. So genes predispose when you will go through puberty, but then the more fat cells you have and the more light you've been exposed to will cause you to go through puberty on the earlier end of when you were already supposed to. The onset of puberty is evolutionary because it was important to have as many offspring as possible. Not all would survive. So once the body sensed that you had enough fat and that resources were plentiful, it would mature and you could reproduce. Uh, This was so fascinating to me. I have to say, like, the science and the way he laid it out, I was just like, of course, of course, our deep evolutionary brains cannot figure out, they cannot keep up with technology and everything that's happening with us in our modern world. So we have so much inputs coming into our body. And it's like, of course, our brain is interpreting it in a way where it's like, okay, we're still really focused on reproduction and survival of the species, right? Yeah. I don't know. I My brain was really going. I was really thinking about this. <laughs> I know. I know. When you think about it that way, we just can't turn it off. But it's causing problems for these kids. Right. We can say why it's happening and it's evolutionary, but we, we, I mean, he does say that in the, I think the last chapter of the book, he's going to say what parents can do to delay this onset of early puberty. Yeah. Listen, listen to me. I was like, excuse me. You first, you're going to scare me as the parent of a five-year-old. You're (laughs) going to scare me so much. (laughs) And then you're like. I'll tell you how, but you got to wait till the last chapter. I was like, do I even have enough time? Like, should I skip to the last chapter right now and start reading? Like, Because do I need to implement these things today? Yeah. Like, does my daughter need to He's like, better start in early childhood. Imagining the like, you know, sand timer and the sand. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, is it already too late? Ah, Yeah. Yeah. He did that to us. It was a little cruel. Okay. He says kids today are more overweight and have higher levels of obesity, plus spend a lot of time in front of screens at all hours. So we can understand why puberty is taking place earlier based on what we know about evolution. But the link between obesity and light exposure doesn't explain why 
male puberty takes place earlier. Children are also being exposed to more endocrine disruptors, which alter the production and effects of naturally produced sex hormones and can mimic the hormones themselves. These are found in plastics, pesticides, hair care products, and meat and dairy items, and it's nearly impossible to avoid them, even when parents really try to set up their homes a certain way, feed their kids a certain diet. High exposure to endocrine disruptors leads to earlier maturation. And he also mentions a few other factors like premature children have these like massive insulin spikes and those over time cause earlier, earlier puberty. And then also children that come from homes with a lot of stress often have earlier puberty. So why does it matter that puberty is taking place earlier? He says early maturers are treated differently, which impacts the way they act and feel about themselves. They're more likely to want to be older, disengage from school, be more peer-oriented. When they spend more time with older people, they're exposed to behaviors that they wouldn't engage in otherwise, like sex, smoking, drinking, truancy, etc., There's a higher risk of pregnancy and STDs, and it's psychologically a lot more difficult to mature early for girls because boys who mature early are respected, given leadership roles, are more likely to be successful in the workplace later in life. My fiance and I were recently talking about the one guy that everyone has in their head, the one guy in high school who was like a man already. Like you can picture that guy that was like full beard. I could tell you his name right now. And my fiance was like, I know who he is too. I was almost going to get out my yearbook and show you him because there is that. Who is that guy? Is he 30? Yeah, of (laughs) course. They're so tall. They already have facial hair. Oh yeah, I remember. Of course, they're like probably good at sports, you know. Yeah. Crazy. But girls who mature early are more likely to have depression, anxiety, eating disorders, and panic attacks. They get a lot of attention from boys and need to make decisions about sex before they're really ready to, which can be very stressful. They have an elevated risk of sexual abuse. And he describes the story. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. I think we can all picture it. The story of a young woman he worked with, Sarah, who matured physically by age 12, got a ton of attention from boys, started hanging out with older kids. School kind of just went out the window. But he does describe that she eventually, even though she fell behind her peers, she did eventually finish community college and get married. But he's kind of just painting the picture of what can happen when a girl matures really early. You know, this was making me think when I was working at an elementary school, we did have one student, I believe she was a third grader at the time, and she had started her period and it was like a really big disruptor for her day and her like quality of life like it was this really sad thing where I think her periods were really extreme heavy maybe there was like leaking happening and I felt really bad because I think it was so bad she was missing school because of it and I just remember that it was like a factor in her Mm -hmm. like case right like as I wasn't her case manager but it was like something as a team that we had to discuss like how to help her manage yeah and she was, I mean, she was really, really overweight to the point where she could barely, I think she couldn't even participate in PE. It was so sad Mm. because of just how it was impacting her. I don't think she really understood why it was happening. It definitely contributed to this otherness that he's talking about in this chapter of where I think she felt so different from her peers because she was dealing with this sort of like womanly problem 
it was just it was a really heartbreaking situation. It was really sad. Yeah, you know, when I had a third grader, same situation, started her period very early in third grade. I didn't even consider the fact that she was now having to deal with handling her period as a third grader. Yeah. Because I feel like I started early, but third grade, I mean, it is hard to manage. He talked about boys like wanting to have sex, but not remembering to carry condoms with them, you know, but like for a girl, a third grader to have to remember to always have something with you in case your period starts. I mean, that is just right. And then if it does start at school, no other girls have it. You know, so nobody understands. Yeah. You're just like this weird person. So oh, I know. what I did want to talk about a little bit, which is really sad, was I had two female students who around like fourth, fifth grade had kind of like mild cognitive impairments and had matured really early. And I do remember it being a big discussion with the team. I even remember reading some one of their like psych reports and having that being kind of like really concerned when I read what they wrote about how she was like a really beautiful girl who needed to be protected. And it was scary because mm. one of them, I remember single mom who had a lot of boyfriends and I got a very uneasy feeling like I had to set really firm boundaries with her because she really wanted a lot of physical attention. Like she always wanted to like touch my hair or hold my hand. And she was mm. in fifth grade. It just felt kind of uncomfortable. You don't even know what to do. Yeah. These are the types of things that when you're starting out as an SLP, you don't even think that you'll be kind of facing Encounter. these really big issues. Yeah. Yeah. It's heavy. Okay. Early maturing kids have a larger gap between their physical maturation and other maturation. So, okay, I already said that. The boys who are interested in sex but can't remember to carry condoms or girls who attract boys but can't decline their advances. Early puberty is also associated with certain types of cancer, especially in women. If you start puberty at 12 or earlier, it elevates your risk of breast cancer by 50% compared to if you started at 16. Early puberty has also been linked to adult ovarian cancer, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes. And in boys, it has been linked to testicular cancer. So then he goes into delaying adulthood. So we've talked about why and why it matters that puberty starts earlier. And now we also have this extended adolescence where we're not entering adulthood. And as a society, we've been doing this. He describes a comparison study done between the graduating classes of 1976 and 77 to those of 2002 and 2003. So I'm not going to describe all of them. It was really interesting. I'm going to describe by age 25 the differences because at 23, they were already kind of very different. And then by age 25, those differences were even greater. Yeah. The amount of kids that were working full time, the older generation, 80% of them were working full time by 25, 70% in the newer generation. Married, 50% in the older generation, 25% in the newer. Having kids, a third of them had kids versus a fifth now. Living with their parents was less than 25% in the older generation, and more than 33% now, and then receiving financial assistance from their parents less than 20, it was the same, less than 25% in the older generation and over 33%. So across all of these measures, the newer generation is just pushing it, still relying on their parents, not 
entering full independence yet, right? Yeah. Which also kind of checks out for me. <laughs> my mom had my brother at age 20 when she was still in college, right. you know, and had to like start life. Her and my dad had to be like, all right, let's buckle down, get our yeah. careers going. We have a kid now. And then I am 39, <laughs> unmarried, <laughs> and have never had kids. But so I know. And I know that he kind of acknowledges that there's a lot of factors at play, but there really are. The entire society that we're growing up in is completely different than the one our parents grew up in when you could buy a house for $90,000 on the salary of a postal worker. It's just, I feel, and I know that he's like, he like defends our generation. Like it's not our fault, Yeah, but we're just trying our best. Just trying our best out here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like what he's saying for me is also true. When I graduated from college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had to kind of flounder. I had to be a waitress for a while before I even landed on speech therapy. I became a speech therapist in my 30s is when I graduated. So right. it wasn't if I had chosen some profession very early on out of high school or, or right out of college. Yeah, I don't think I would have found what really brings me a lot of joy and a lot of purpose in my career. Yeah. So we're kind of in a lucky position that we are being given that time to make those decisions and experiment with what we want to do. Yeah. So there are a few opinions about why this is happening and what it means. The first is that kids today are emotionally immature, that they were coddled and believe that they deserve this really grand life. They won't settle for a job they think is beneath them. So mm. they take a lot of time to find themselves. Mm. Another theory is that they're making rational choices. Today, jobs that pay well require more education, so kids stay in school longer. Gender roles have changed. Women are staying in school and are more likely to have high-paying jobs and are less dependent on men to support them, so they don't need to get married until they've established their career. And in general, the middle class is delaying marriage and parenthood. Right. And then a third theory is that it's arrested development. Basically, these kids now are avoiding commitments and responsibility. But he says we need a fourth perspective that considers neuroplasticity because the brain remains malleable. So if these individuals are engaged in challenging new experiences, it will keep that window of plasticity open. And going to college is probably the best way to develop self-control and strengthen cognitive abilities because you are challenged and exposed to new ideas constantly. He says older adolescents entering college still have challenges with self-regulation. Their easily aroused reward-seeking system combined with unstructured, minimally supervised days can be a problem. So if adulthood is delayed, we face increased risky behaviors. But on the other hand, if there's too much structure, we risk closing that window of plasticity. So he says it's important that we focus on how the time is spent if we are going to basically allow kids to delay adulthood. Let's move on to chapter four, how adolescents think. So he starts with the story of Danny, who's a 17-year-old who caused a car accident driving home from a party one night that took the life of a 60-year-old mother of three. Really sad. I know this story. His blood alcohol level was 0.06, which is below the adult legal limit for driving, but illegal because of his age. He had been in a fight with his girlfriend who wanted to break up with him, and cell phone records indicated that he was calling and texting her furiously during the whole drive. So even though he was driving under the speed limit, he lost control of the car, most likely because of his negligence. But this was a stand-up student going to an Ivy League school the next year on a baseball scholarship who volunteered with young children, just totally out of character for him to do something like this. The prosecutor had three options when trying him in court, either try him as a juvenile 
with death by auto, which would send him to a juvenile facility for up to three years, Mm. give him the same charge, but as an adult, which would send him to county jail for five years, or charge him with aggravated manslaughter, which could end up sending him to state prison for 30 years. And the prosecutor really wanted to send a message to the community because he saw this as like a privileged kid who had no regard for human life. And the fact that Danny was not drunk made it even worse because he knew what he was doing in the eyes of the prosecutor. Danny's defense attorney asked Dr. Steinberg to speak on his behalf about the science of the adolescent brain. And Dr. Steinberg says he gets calls like this from attorneys every month who are hoping to prove that poor judgment is a result of the way their brains work. And in the end, the prosecutor agreed to the lesser sentence if Danny would plead guilty as an adult. So he he did end up going to jail for a maximum of five years. So then he says that adolescents take more risks than children or adults. This peaks in the late teens. It was pretty interesting, though. Oh, you know what I missed was the um, accident bump. I did skip that part. <laughs> Let me quickly describe that because I skipped it. So in the last chapter, okay, it's called the accident bump. They also, when they're trying to decide, like, when is puberty starting for boys, they use the accident hump. And this is after boys hit puberty, because of their rise in testosterone, there's this period when male mortality spikes because they engage in more risky behaviors. So the accident hump has lowered about three months per decade over the last several centuries. So that was pretty interesting that there is this spike in male mortality in their teens. I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, teens are like risk takers, but I didn't think of it that way. So when they engage in this risky behavior, there's more violence, self-inflicted injuries, unintentional drownings, drug experimentation, accidental pregnancies, and car crashes. And this is confusing because teens are just as smart as adults. Our cognitive ability improves from birth to 16, and then it plateaus and remains stable for 30 years before it starts to decline. So in terms of smarts, at 16, you've you've got it, right? Yeah. And they're also knowledgeable about the dangers associated with these behaviors when they're asked, and they don't have delusions of invulnerability. So why do they do it? Dr. Steinberg describes the development of the adolescent brain. He says it reaches its full size by about age 10, and then changes that take place after are more about reorganization than growth. By the early 20s, the neural networks in the brain are more entrenched and insulated, and they're better able to communicate over long distances. There will still be some changes, but the transformation will never reach this level again. When you're a kid, your brain kind of like mostly communicates with one area communicates with neighboring areas or close by areas. And then once you're a teen, it starts to build these connections between further away areas. The transformations take place primarily in two areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex and the limbic system. So our prefrontal cortex is responsible for self-regulation and the limbic system plays an important role in generating emotions. There are three overlapping phases of how these regions learn to work together. In the first phase, he calls it starting the engines. The limbic system starts to become more easily aroused at the start of puberty. So you're going to have the higher highs and lower lows. You're more sensitive, sensation-seeking, like you want to have exciting experiences. And this correlates with the start and end of maturation. So it'll happen earlier before the teenage years for early matures. And I think he said that can be Mm. confusing for parents because they're expecting Mm -hmm. like 
around 13, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Kids to start acting like that. In phase two, which he calls developing a better braking system, this is the start of pre-adolescence and then it ends around age 16. Your prefrontal cortex becomes better organized. There's synaptic pruning and myelination. Executive functions strengthen like decision-making, problem-solving, and planning ahead. And these kids become much more reasonable and easier to have discussions with. Just less drama overall. Phase three, he calls putting a skilled driver behind the wheel. This is when the brain becomes more interconnected. It ends in the early 20s and connections between the prefrontal cortex and limbic system are strengthened. These kids have more reliable regulation, self-regulation. They control their impulses better, think about long-term consequences, and can resist peer pressure more. And they're not as influenced by fatigue, stress, or emotional arousal. Some of these changes are just a continuation of the way the brain has been developing since birth, but other changes are unique to adolescents, especially those in the limbic system, which he calls the brain's sentry. So a sentry is like a soldier who stands guard and detects threat, and the limbic system acts this way. It's a collection of structures with different functions that work together to detect rewards and threats in the environment. The limbic system generates an emotion that motivates us to react to the environment, and it has to communicate with the prefrontal cortex for this to happen. So he described it as a report being sent up to the prefrontal cortex with the emotion and then the prefrontal cortex interpreting it and deciding what to do. This is downstairs brain and upstairs brain if you've read The Whole Brain Child, right? The prefrontal cortex basically checks us and keeps us from just always following what we feel at any time. Our actions really depend on how strong that emotion is and how well we can manage it. So some temptations are easier to resist than others based on how strong the feelings are. And under certain conditions, I think we all know this, we're more likely to give in to temptations, like when we're stressed or tired. And some people have more trouble regulating if they have stronger limbic system response or weaker self-control. Now he describes the pursuit of pleasure. So he says puberty changes the brain's chemistry, making it more easily aroused in response to rewards. Sex hormones have a powerful impact. Dopamine is what motivates us to go after experiences of pleasure So when we see things like images of happy faces, money, chocolate cake, etc., we're going to end up craving those things. And then he describes dopamine squirts, which I can't remember what book we already talked about this. Hard to know. (laughs) Can we call it something else? I know. Okay. A dopamine squirt Squirt. (laughs) is when you anticipate a reward, like when a roulette wheel is spinning and you're like, oh. It might land on my number or you see a dessert cart being wheeled around. So when we finally get the thing we're thinking about, dopamine creates the sensation of delight. But at puberty, there's a large increase in dopamine receptors in the brain, especially in that pathway from the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex. And those pathways are easily activated. This is why things that feel good feel better during adolescence, like your first kiss, listening to music, laughing with your friends. This got me thinking about all kinds. I mean, I do picture like laughing so hard. You're just like crying about the stupidest things. Listen, this part, it was like so eye-opening to me and like affirming because sometimes I do find myself, it's really sad, but it almost feels like things lose their magic a little bit. Like as you get older, like that's the feeling, right? Like now when I laugh really hard... I find myself going like, wow, I haven't laughed that hard in like a really long time. 
I'll be like, I used to laugh so hard all the time, like in high school, staying up late with your friends and everything's so funny and music is so good. And like, yeah, it's even hard for me to like discover new music now where I just kind of want to listen to like what I always listen to. And I don't know, I was kind of feeling like it was a me problem. Like you grow up, you become jaded or like disenchanted or whatever. And it's kind of it was like, nice to know, like, okay, this is just my brain. (laughs) Things literally don't feel as rewarding as they used to. Yeah, it's not. It's not like something within me. It's just sort of a general thing that happens. Yeah, no, it it helped me a lot. Because I feel like I was still chasing some of that maybe in my late 20s and early 30s, like especially with relationships, stuff just didn't feel as like passionate, you know? Yes. And you would look back and kind of reminisce and like long for things you experienced when you were a teen. And it's like, yeah, no, you don't get that again. I'm sorry. You just don't get that. You don't get to have that again. (laughs) But with those high highs come those super low lows, like the breakups that are just the most devastating things you'll ever experience, you know? And I just think things even out, I guess, as you get older. But it was helpful to read this and just go, okay, this is normal. This is not me. (laughs) This is normal. Okay. So the nucleus acumen, how do you say that? Nucleus acumen? Acumen? I don't know. I should know this from like neuro... Yeah, you're Latin. Nucleus (laughs) accumens, which is most Mm -hmm. active when we experience pleasure, gets bigger as we grow into adolescence, but then smaller as we grow into adulthood. So there you go. Just another, you don't get to experience pleasure as much now. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) We're also more sensitive to chemical pleasures when we're teens. Alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, We're drawn to them and more likely to lead to regular use, which leads to addiction. If you try them as an adult, the dopamine squirt you get won't be as strong. So you're less likely to become addicted. We talked about that last episode. Right. Pleasure seeking is strongest in the first half of adolescence up to around age 16. Kids might put themselves in dangerous situations to get a reward. And it's not just physical rewards. They also seek social rewards like praise and attention and become really sensitive to peers' opinions. Yeah. And then this is a really important thing for us to remember. They're more responsive to rewards, but less sensitive to losses. So they're likely to approach a situation where a reward is possible, but less likely to avoid situations where they have something to lose. Mm. So you can change behavior by motivating with a reward much more easily than threatening a kid with potential punishment because they're not going to care as much. The point of adolescence is mating. I don't know why I was like, oh. what? Okay. <laughs> I mean, of course it is. Of course. But that's what he says. Like, basically, we can explain a lot of their behavior. Yeah. Right. Puberty allows mating to happen. We mature sexually. We want sex. We seek partners. In the wild, males have to compete with older and stronger competitors for the most desirable partners. So they have to take risks to get it done. The increase in dopamine after puberty makes this possible. And a young woman is most fertile in her late teens, and then fertility drops. So it makes sense that young people are taking the most risks at that time. It's like that accident hump corresponds with the time when men are like fighting for a partner. These traits have remained with us even though we no longer need them because you could just meet someone online and you might not even want to have kids until you're a lot older. But it's not just our libido that's excited. Sex hormones make us more sensitive to rewards in general. So we'll seek good rewards and more dangerous ones. And we want kids to take some risks like trying out for sports or the play. 
taking harder courses, but we don't want them to take the more dangerous risks. Then he describes the prefrontal cortex as the brain's CEO. So this is where our higher level cognitive skills are, thinking ahead, evaluating choices, coordinating your emotions and thoughts. There's a lot of pruning and myelination that goes on as this develops into the mid-20s. And they've done fMRI studies of younger children versus teens on tasks that require self-control, like watching a computer screen and hitting a button every time a certain letter appears capitalized, but holding yourself back from hitting the button when that same letter is lowercase. Sure. And even if the young children perform just as well as the adolescents, the scans of their brain show that the young children have a more diffuse pattern of prefrontal activation. And he compares it to if you were sitting down to read and you turned on the overhead lights just flooding the whole room so you could see versus sitting down in a chair and turning on a reading lamp that just shines. So it's like the adolescent brain is becoming more efficient at these types of tasks. Self-control comes and goes at this age, though, so they don't display it all the time. They can perform as well or better than adults on self-control tasks under ideal circumstances when they're offered rewards. But if they're upset, excited, or tired, it has a really big impact because the brain circuits aren't fully mature. So we have to understand that their capacity for self-control and good judgment depends heavily on circumstances. The prefrontal cortex also gets better at recruiting additional resources when needed. Adults have more widespread activation in the brain during self-control tasks, but it's more coordinated than that of children. They have thick white cables connecting non-neighboring brain regions, whereas children's brains have a bunch of little local connections. And the brain continues to get more interconnected until around age 22. So he tells the story of Justin, a 14-year-old excellent student who didn't get along with his math teacher. He says that she singled him out, called him names, insinuated in front of other kids that he was gay. One time he said he went to go pick up a piece of paper he dropped to throw it away, and she told the class that he was getting ready for his future as a trash collector. He also says she sprayed him with a water bottle, hit him with a pillow, and flicked his ear when she walked by him. So 14-year-old Justin created a website to retaliate called Welcome to Teacher Sucks, S-U-X. The website listed the top 10 reasons that this teacher deserved to die. It had a picture where it morphed from her face to Adolf Hitler's face back and forth. It also had a picture of her with her throat cut. He showed it to another student and then it started to spread. Several other kids started to see it. He also, oh, he had a plea on there to send him $20 so that he could hire a hitman. Okay. A teacher finds it and reports it to the principal. And there were other things on there, things about the principal. And this was in 1998 and school shootings were on the rise. Yes. So the principal immediately reported it to the local police and FBI. The teacher saw the website and she became so anxious that she had trouble sleeping, lost her appetite. She eventually had to quit teaching. She had been a teacher for 28 years. It's scary. I know. The kid took down the website before the investigation even started, I believe. And so the FBI investigated but decided not to pursue it. And then over the summer, the district decided they needed to expel him. His family sued, saying it was a violation of his First Amendment rights. But the district won both the initial court case and a later appeal. The judges determined that the website was really disruptive to the school, and so they did have grounds to expel him. But parents at his new, he gets sent to a boarding school, and parents at his new boarding school also complained, and he ended up being asked to leave. And then he was homeschooled for the rest of high school and went to college and law school, and he now works as a lawyer. 
So it's it's kind of like tricky because well, kids are so impulsive. Let me ask though, at the boarding school, did parents complain because of his previous the previous website or was his behavior continuing? The case got national attention and was well known at the time. Oh. And so the parents okay. at the new school didn't feel safe with him there. I see. So now he's a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, now he's a lawyer. So that show I mean, this is like <laughs> an accomplished adult. And we, it just shows you like at 14, right. if things aren't going your way, like you're so you can make bad decisions, you can make really bad decisions without thinking through the consequences. And Dr. Steinberg was contacted by Justin's lawyers in 1999 when the teacher sued him for defamation and damages because she had to end her teaching career after the incident. He thought it was so preposterous that a teacher would be suing a 14-year-old that he was like, this won't even go to court, but it did. In the end, this jury did side with the teacher and awarded her 500000 in damages. So why do kids do what they do? He says, we can't really know what was happening in this kid's mind or with Danny's accident, the boy who got in the car accident. Did he understand how dangerous texting while driving was? Was he even texting while he was driving? It could have been something else. We can understand how people make decisions by testing them under controlled conditions and then seeing how things change when the conditions are altered. There have been thousands of experiments on adolescent decision making, and there are two important differences between children, adolescents, and adults. First, the sensitivity to potential rewards of a risky choice peaks around age 16, so it's easier to get adolescents to gamble even when odds of winning are small. Second, children make more impulsive Mm. decisions than teenagers. And teenagers make more impulsive ones than adults. So the attraction to rewards makes them do really risky things and poor self-control makes it hard to think before they act. Mm. He mentions that most of the research on decision making has been done in the United States, but that these things should be seen everywhere because all adolescents go through puberty and have the same changes in their brains in terms of hormones. Yeah. Self-control is less influenced by sex hormones, so it's hard to make predictions across cultures. Self-control is your prefrontal cortex and your prefrontal cortex is more influenced by your environment. So he says, shouldn't teens in places like Asia, where they demand more self-control, have this skill develop faster. So he describes a study he did in 2010 covering all different countries in the, like so many, China, Colombia, Cyprus, India, Italy, Mm -hmm. tons of countries. The results were similar in terms of reward sensitivity and self-control. Some differences were impacted by cultural norms, like the increase in drinking alcohol in countries where alcohol is frequently consumed by adults. Whereas obviously in countries where even adults kind of aren't encouraged to drink alcohol or it's hard to get, those kids don't do it. Yeah, There's little gun violence in adolescents in countries with strict gun laws and not a lot of unprotected sex in cultures where any sex before marriage is frowned upon. So across cultures, we're seeing heightened sensation seeking, maturing impulse control and a willingness to take risks during this age. But the differences we see are not because the teenagers themselves are wired differently, just that the social context is different. We shouldn't be trying to change the teenagers. We should be trying to change the environment around them. And we'll talk more about that in the next chapter. And he says we also see the same things in animals as they go through puberty. They have more dopamine receptors, increase in pleasure from drugs, which I hate that they test that. It's like... Yeah, cocaine in a mouse. It's so sad. Interest in socializing and taking risks. Okay, so since puberty is happening at a younger age, 
the brain's reward system becomes really easily aroused at a much younger age than it used to. Sure. But self-control maturation is not driven by puberty. So your ability to control your impulses is driven by your prefrontal cortex. They still learn to plan, think ahead, and control impulses at the same age that they always have. So these kids learn that those skills at the same time as people 100 years ago, but they're entering puberty so much younger, and we have this huge... It used to be that the age you became easily aroused kind of coincided with your ability to deal with that arousal. And now we have this massive mismatch, this big period where they can't handle the arousal. And that's why we're seeing the problems we're seeing. Wow. There we go. We learned why. We know why now. Now we know why. (laughs) All right, Adrian, any thoughts on any of that? Gosh, we should have broken those two chapters into two episodes. (laughs) No, it's okay. I thought they went together well. The first chapter three really like set this foundation of like there has been a change and then chapter four is like and here is kind of why and how it's really affecting kids like knowing that there's such a gap between brain development and you know puberty and the hormones it's really important especially I was just thinking about like us as speech therapists you know we deal with a lot of kids who have behaviors all kinds, right? Yeah. And I do think about even, okay, when I was working at a K through eight school, that was like a really good example. Because if you were there long term, you would know kids from kindergarten all the way up to when they left for high school. And it's like a really big, really big time to know somebody. So I, I wasn't there for that long. But I would talk to the SLP who was there before me. And she would be like, Oh, if you see this kid now, this fifth grader, And then tell me some like unhinged story about something he did in second grade, like went after the principal with like a broom handle or something crazy. And I'm like, what? but that's such a good example of when kids are younger, they're much more impulsive. They don't think about the consequences Um, upstairs, downstairs brain, right? Decision making. And to think about having all of this early puberty, all of these like pleasure seeking and risk taking and not having even less ability to reason. Yeah. I think that can really help our jobs as SLPs just to have a better foundational understanding of why these things are happening. To think more along the lines of Dr. Steinberg, right, where he's called in on these to testify on these cases, you know, that brain science is a huge factor in these kinds of issues. And I just feel like if we can bring that knowledge to our behavior and our dealings with kids who have a lot going on inside of them, maybe we can be a little bit more understanding and empathetic. And I feel like the way things are going in school districts now, there's no consequences anyway. So (laughs) I don't think anybody's coming down super hard on these kids. I know. I know. Uh, The pendulum has swung. They do not have boundaries. (laughs) I feel like reading this, you can see why this book would have had such an impact on Tara Sumter and why she constantly recommends it because her big focus is so much on executive functioning skills. And now we're seeing basically there's not a whole lot we can do to fix this problem of early puberty. I mean, I guess he's going to tell us later, but this is happening around us. Screens, poor diet, things are happening. Endocrine disruptors that are making kids hit puberty younger. And whether you can control it in your own kids isn't really, you can't control it in the kids you work with. It's going to be happening in your schools. So 
what we can influence is their ability to handle what happens with them. So their, you know, their ability to weigh the consequences of something, create a plan, think about, you know, think about the future, control their impulses. Those are skills that we can help kids develop. I mean, we know that other executive functioning skills like being able to perceive things and pay attention are so important for speech and language development. But then just for everything, for like living your life, these other skills have got to develop and we have to help them develop them earlier if they're going to be reaching puberty earlier. Otherwise, we're just headed down this like terrible path with adolescence. Yeah, I know. I feel like there's room for like definitely some more, some way to weave it into the curriculum at an earlier age, right? Consequences and behavior and maybe more resources for parents or something. I wish that parents knew how much screen time really affects kids. Yes. I was even telling a friend when I read that fact about how even artificial light from screens can disrupt melatonin production. And I like read that fact and was like, oh, did you know this? That like it can cause early maturation because it tricks your brain into thinking like it is a different season and that there's more food available. So it's a better time to reproduce. And my friend was like, oh, well, I just thought I just thought that it just made it hard to sleep. I didn't know that it affected people in that way. And I'm like, yeah, I I wish everybody knew that. Yeah, it's kind of like the way it's presented with the screen time is like, yeah, it will disrupt your sleep. Like you almost picture, oh, the light shining in your eyes makes it so your eyes can't like you're you're not thinking about these like bigger changes happening like to your body, to your hormones. You know, it's major. Right. And especially with kids, it's like I think parents think like, oh, screen time's not good. We need them outside and stuff. But you don't really understand like, oh, this can have like literal lasting changes that cannot be undone. Yeah. You know, unless you read the last chapter of the book and then maybe it can. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) We're just crossing our fingers, hoping he gives us some real actionable items. I got to (laughs) know. Oof. Well, this is a lot to think about. Yes. So if you're listening and reading along with us head to our Instagram. We've got some great posts about this information and we'd love for you to weigh in. Chime in, let us know. And we'll see you next time. We're going to discuss chapters five and six. So these are protecting adolescents from themselves and the importance of self-regulation. So give us something to do, Lawrence Steinberg. (laughs) We need (laughs) help. Tell us what we can do. (laughs) All right. We'll see you next week. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. Thanks for listening to this episode of the SLP Book Club. If you love what we're doing, the best way to show your support is by leaving a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to join the discussion, head to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Each week, we're posting about the topics we discuss, and we'd love for you to weigh in. Want to listen to episodes early and ad-free, plus get one free resource from my TPT store each month? Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club and join our Patreon for only $3.